0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 365, Why Debate Theology? This episode of the Trinity's podcast is a short informal talk that I gave at a missions conference put on by Kingdom of God Ministry and Missions based in Minnesota, but this conference was held at my home church, Higher Ground Church in White House, Tennessee. I'll put a link on the blog post for this episode. Kingdom of God Ministry and Missions are the folks that co-sponsored and organized my debate with Michael Brown about the Trinity and my debate with Chris Date about the deity of Christ so you can check out their website if you want to learn more about them. Because it was a missions conference, I not only talked about debating theological differences, but I said a few things about how I think that relates to the topic of evangelism. It's very much geared towards a Unitarian Christian audience, because that's who I was talking to. The reason I'm presenting this to you now is to get you warmed up for an excellent debate that I'm going to present next in two episodes of the Trinity's podcast. Here, then, is my short talk from October 4th, 2019, called, Why Debate Theology? I don't think debating points of theology is directly evangelization or missions, but I think they're related in the following way. Getting clear on this theology really is an issue of Reformation. It's really a Reformation cause. Let's go back to the sources. We don't need these later theoretical things that are, in my view, weighing down the gospel. See, it turns out the gospel did really well in the first 300 years. In fact, it did as well as it's ever done. And I think if you unencumber it by rolling back some of these things, for some people that's not going to matter, but for some people it is. There are some people who do not want to hear the gospel If they have to hear about the Trinity or Jesus being God and things like that so for instance Muslims which is a very large group of people it's the second biggest religion in the world every Muslim debater whether they're a 70 year old renowned scholar or a 10 year old boy every Muslim debater is gonna say well those silly Christians they're so confused about there being one God they got three gods They think God's a man. I mean, that's crazy. Come on, Jesus, you know, he could eat a sandwich and go to sleep and go to the bathroom, and God doesn't do those things, right? So they have been just hammering at this ever since around 632 AD, and they're not letting up. And so it's not that necessarily you need to address all these fine theological points with them, but my point is that when you have functioning, healthy churches that are not encumbered by things like the doctrine of the Trinity then maybe we'll actually get somewhere with them because so far we've basically got nowhere with them. When Islam comes in, it's like a uh, perfect preventative measure against traditional Christianity. It takes over the land, then through their culture and their law, they strangle out the native Christianity in that area until it's like 0.5%. And then they remain Muslim ever after. And that's the way it's worked since the 600s when they started taking over lands. So why shouldn't some of these be reconverted? Well, maybe they will be someday, God willing. Yeah, debates, I think, are kind of countercultural for us. We're not a debating culture. We sometimes like to fight and argue and call names, but actually having serious debates where truth is the issue, and there are rules, and there's structure, and where it takes effort to sit down there and listen to the thing and take notes, that's not really a part of our culture. And particularly in America, we're kind of anti-intellectual. Practical people are important. People who know how to do things, they're important. But truth, yeah, whatever. Take that and sit in your ivory tower and do nothing. We're interested in making money and building things. So yeah, we're kind of anti-intellectual. We're not accustomed to debates. But I think they're important um, for a couple of different reasons. So I just wanted to talk about why I think debates are important. Well, let me say one more thing about the evangelism angle and how it's relevant like I said before, one way it's relevant is the gospel, unencumbered by some of these other things, I think is a, sharper, it's a sharper-edged sword, and it can cut things that it wouldn't otherwise be able to cut. Another thing, though, is preventative. There are people every day in Western countries that were brought up Catholic or Protestant, and they convert to Islam, and they just decide that this Trinity stuff is just too much for them. And Islam comes in and says, hey, we only only have one God here, and it all makes sense. You don't have to believe five impossible things before breakfast. Or they might convert to Judaism or to something else just because this doesn't make sense. Another story that's very common, if you know a lot of people who were brought up Catholic, uh, you have a smart Catholic kid, they're going to Catholic school, they get to be about 12 13 14 15 they start asking hard questions and the nuns and the priests say just shut up you just take these things on faith and then they say okay that's interesting i think i'm going to be an atheist now that's how it works they figure well i guess this is just kids stuff it doesn't make any sense it's like santa and the easter bunny and other possible things i've been told about little green men from mars so yeah, let, let's stick with adult stuff that's real. Uh Let's stick with truth. We don't need any more fairy tales. We don't need more Santa. We don't need any more triune God. And, um, you know, it's a terrible shame because these people would be good for the kingdom of God. And in some cases, their parents are Christians and they've lost the game, though. So it's preventative, too, I think, this cause of reformation. So I'm talking about, you know, arguing things like Unitarian versus Christian theology, and the New Testament, human Jesus versus the God-man of Catholic theory. So that's what kind of thing we're talking about. Now, I think the main function and the main good of such debates is that debates encourage Unitarian Christians. Now, you might think, well, isn't the point of debating to convince the other side? Kind of. Look, the other guy on stage, just because of the fact that he's up there Arguing for a contrary view, it's not like he's going to repent right there in front of everybody and change his mind just because you just presented overwhelming evidence. No, no, he's got lots of defenses against overwhelming evidence. Otherwise, he wouldn't be up there. But you know, it's not for him. That's not why you're doing it. It's for the sake of the people who listen. Now, does it help them? Well, it can help them. It's up to them. Right, Because some people might listen to 5 Minutes and say, boring, and then go back to the cat videos on YouTube. Because God knows those are interesting. Look at that cat. He can play the piano. Other people, unfortunately, they might just tune in just because they want to see somebody get beat up really bad. It's like a fight, boxing. That's not a very good reason to tune into a debate. If you really want to see a fight, watch hockey. Some people... They are actually interested in the topic being debated, but they are just so passionately wedded to their own side that no matter what happens in the debate, they're just going to come off saying, oh, that guy's a fool. What an idiot. Oh, we are so right. I didn't even know how right we were. Gosh, we are so right. It's just how human nature is. They just can't hear what the other side's saying and everything. They think their guy's just speaking pearls of wisdom, you know, with every word that comes out of his mouth. Even if it makes no sense, just because he's on the correct side, you're going to say, oh, he he won so so bad. He killed that guy. Debates are actually bad for that guy, that guy in the audience, because they just cement him into a view more firmly than he was before. Okay, but what are you going to do? You still have to put truth out there. It is helpful for some people. Some people, they don't really know what they think about this stuff. They really don't. In fact, this is most Christians in the pew, even the somewhat educated ones. Even some of them have PhDs, but they just never really thought about, well, does this make sense? Is it actually in the Bible? Why should I think this is essential to the gospel? Why should I even think it's important to the gospel? Why isn't this just some crazy add-on? Like the papacy, or transubstantiation, or the perpetual virginity of Mary, and things like that. Why shouldn't I put it in that category? Okay, so a lot of people, they really don't know what they think about it, but they know this guy over here, he's the right one. He's correct, obviously, because my friends told me. Um, So they'll come and listen, and they will learn a lot. They'll be surprised, maybe, by what the other side says. So it's good for them. What they do with it after is, you know, anybody's guess. There are some people who are seekers, basically. They're truth seekers. They have thought about these things a little bit, and they have discovered that they are very confusing things. And they have also discovered that you can't just trust the experts because the experts disagree. And sometimes the experts are saying unintelligible gibberty jab. So they're there because they're trying to figure this out for themselves. Debates can be good for them. Of course, it always depends on the quality of the debaters. There are debates which both sides are so terrible that it's really just not worth anything to sit there and watch it go down. I've seen debates like this. I won't say any names. Sometimes people who want to be debaters don't particularly know a lot about the topic. They are just aggressive, loudmouth people who want to have the glory of defeating the horrible heretics on the other side. So, you know, you get a lot of big mouths and blowhards that are just these opinionated drunk uncle kind of guys. It's the same type of person that goes into talk show radio hosting. Those aren't particularly worth anybody's time. I guess there's a certain human interest in it if you just wanna see people uh, insulting each other and seeing who can talk the loudest. I guess it's like watching sumo wrestling, but it's verbal. Debates have to be done well. It matters who's debating. Even if you've got a good topic, they're not necessarily all that great. I've made the mistake before of debating people, and then afterwards I said, why did I do that? That was very frustrating. Not one of the recent ones, but before that. Okay, back to the point. Debates encourage Unitarian Christians. And, you know, this is maybe our most direct example in Scripture, of Apollos, in Acts chapter 18— and Apollos was this learned fellow from Alexandria, which was kind of the, the center of Greek language learning, one of the big centers of Greek language learning in the ancient world. And Apollos comes onto the scene and says, He greatly helped those who through grace had become believers, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. Now, did he convince any Jews to accept Jesus as the Christ? I imagine he did, you know, because there are always sincere truth seekers out there and the grace of God is active in the world. But it doesn't mention the people whose minds were changed. It mentions that it really strengthened and helped the believers, the early Jesus movement. Now, I've been told by many people I haven't really seen very much of this firsthand because the kind of Unitarian Christians I know are people like Dan Gill, Sir Anthony Buzzard. They are just people who just want to stand on a mountaintop and blow a trumpet and you know tell everybody about this, right? But not all Unitarian Christians are like that. And I've been told that there are cases of churches and, and groups of people where they kind of want to keep it on the down low, They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to be in the weirdo club. They don't want people to ostracize them. I even heard someone told me about some group of folks who, uh, they actually wanted to call themselves Trinitarian just because that would sound a lot better. But then they defined Trinitarian to mean, you know, just believing in God and his human son and in the spirit of God. Well, sure, if you define Trinitarian that way, I'm a Trinitarian too. I guess we're all Trinitarians. It's easy to understand why they did that. It's just incredibly uncool to not be Trinitarian. Maybe they needed encouragement, people to help them to realize that, no, this is actually important. Uh, it's important for practical reasons. It's important just for understanding the Bible and theology. The world needs the gospel preached in this way, and the, the wider church needs reformation of this kind. Maybe they needed encouragement. They needed people to debate and to reassure them that, yes, actually, there's an overwhelmingly strong case for this. And once you see it in Scripture, you can't, once you fully, thoroughly see it, you can't unsee it. You just really, oh, yeah, God, that's the Father. Right. Gee, why didn't I see that before? And, oh, the Son, that's someone else. Right, a man born, died, suffered, ate, drank, slept. Yeah, obviously he's a man. I mean, what else would he be? Yeah, I mean, I would attribute that to just partly lack of debates, and I think the church needs this kind of encouragement for protection against outside attack and just to help them know that they're inheritors of precious truth. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I go through a number of what I call ear closers— factors which cause Christians to not know about Unitarian Christian theology, and factors which debating can get around. There are other reasons why I think we need debating for our cause of reformation to have success. If you look at it objectively, frankly, we're not doing all that well in a sense. If you want to talk about numbers of people persuaded, I think we're making a good case. Those of us who are arguing about this stuff. Yeah, they're, they're making a good case. Okay. But we're not exactly sweeping the field. It's not like uh, the cause of Reformation is just burning down the old structures. What's going on? Well, I want to talk about some ear closers for a minute. And these are just some facts about the world and the people in it, which prevent these truths from being heard. And in fact, for a lot of people, they don't see any Unitarian theology, they don't talk about it, they don't hear nothing about it. What's that? Nobody knows. Well, really, why is that? That's really kind of strange, actually. If you know what uh, Calvinism versus Arminian theology versus open theism is, why wouldn't you know about Unitarian views about God the Father? Why wouldn't you know about Christology, where Jesus doesn't have two natures, where he's a special, uh, miraculously conceived human being? So what are some of these factors that just close people's ears so that our message doesn't get heard? One is the perception that uh, we're all a bunch of cultists. By the way, right after this meeting, we will be sacrificing chickens and uh, handling snakes, drinking some strychnine to wash it all down. As long as they think we're cultists, they don't have to listen to a thing that we say. And um, in America, the only known Unitarian group, really, for most people, is the Jehovah's Witnesses. And everybody knows they're a cult. Even they know they're a cult. Everybody does, right? It's all, you do what the man says. In that case, the man is that organization in Brooklyn. And you think what they tell you to think and you do what they tell you to do. They think we're cultists. Uh, Maybe some groups encourage this just by, I don't know, kind of blindly believing what some leader tells them, but I mean, on the whole, this is just kind of a silly stereotype, isn't it? As far as people who are in the Church of God or in other non-Trinitarian churches. Uh, another really big one, I think maybe the biggest one, is the fact that ours is a tiny minority view in the theological tradition. Now, when you look at it historically, it's quite different. Because at first, everybody was a Unitarian— Although people can't see that because they've been taught to read the New Testament in ways that Catholic traditions read the New Testament. Uh, But once upon a time, it's especially clear with respect to this tri-personal God idea, once upon a time, there weren't any Christians in the world who believed in a tri-personal God. And strangely enough, the gospel seemed to go forward very well in those days. But anyway... Look, if you walk into a Christian bookstore, or if you look at a Christian bookseller, if you go to Christian websites, conferences, and things like this, you just won't find books by Sir Anthony Buzzard, J. Dan Gill, Dale Tuggy, Keegan Chandler. They're just not there. Now, of course, they're not there because our views are not welcome in mainstream publishing houses. It's not so much an issue of quality, it's just they think it's beyond the pale. The reason this is a problem for us is you don't get into an argument with a conspiracy theorist. Well, let me ask you, how many have been in an argument with a conspiracy theorist? Did you enjoy it? Did you want to hit your head against the wall in about five minutes? Right? It's a waste of time. If somebody is a real conspiracy theorist, just they don't care what the experts say. They don't care really what the evidence is. They've got this cockamamie, improbable story. And the reason there's no evidence for it is because they're really good at hiding evidence, the people in the conspiracy, right? So the government's hiding aliens from us. 9-11 was an inside job and the earth is flat. Okay, but anyway, if they think our view is a tiny minority view, they say to themselves, oh, this must just be conspiracy theory. Nobody argues with that. It's not a good use of your time to argue with a conspiracy theorist. And this does present a problem for us, and I don't think we've quite solved this problem fully yet. Our view is, in the present day, a small minority, uh, at least among theologian types. And how did it get that way? If the Bible is as clear as we say it is about these things, then why did it go so far off the rails? There's a big story there. I don't think it's a one-sentence simple story, like the Greeks messed everything up. I think there's a lot more that has to be said about it than that. Okay, another ear-closer is, no PhD, no thanks. Professionals only, please. This is a shortcut people take. Like, hmm, should I read this book? Let me look at the back. How many letters are after the person's name? And is it a decent school or not? It's a shortcut people take, and that's just how the world is. Now, it doesn't really make any sense. There's plenty of stupid PhDs in the world. I can tell you, I've met some, more than a few. And, you know, once upon a time, there were no PhDs. Did Augustine have a PhD? No. If you go back far enough in history, there were no universities, there were no doctoral degrees at all, or master's or anything else. So... A degree is not necessary for knowing what you're talking about. But what it is for the average person, it's a shortcut. It's a way of trying to narrow down what you should actually pay attention to. You see a 100 books, and you say to yourself, okay, but who's the author? Oh, well, these aren't by people with terminal degrees in their field. Um, So I'm going to rule those out. Maybe I'll think about this 15% that are written by people like that. That's how they think. And closely related to that is self-published, huh? Good luck with that. Or if it's a small publisher, you know, if it's published by your church or denomination or something like that. Again, it's a shortcut. Look, I've read lots of books produced by Oxford University Press that really are not good books or other major publishers, but it's traditional for people to just let them be the gatekeeper. Well, If these guys published it, it must be worthwhile. And look, there's a lot of books in the world we have to avoid. There's always a genre of books written by bitter 60-year-old white men who live in their basement, and everybody else is a fool, and uh, only they're smart enough to figure out how the world really works. And now, I mean, it looks like he typed it up himself and maybe got his cousin to make a cover You don't want to read books like that. 99% of the time, they're terrible. And so you'd like to think that that slick-looking, nice-looking book, published by HarperCollins, makes sense and is more worth your time. Is this a shortcut people take? Now, I have self-published a book. My book is self-published called What is the Trinity? But when I did it, knowing this, I worked really hard to make it look just like a major published book. Okay, okay. So here's the interesting thing about debates. Debates get around all of those factors. Generally, someone who goes to a Christian college or goes to seminary, they might think, hey, nobody debates about whether God's a trinity, right? We're all Christians here. You wouldn't debate something like that with Christians. That'd be like Americans debating whether there should be freedom of speech or... Whoa, Wow. before our culture went in the toilet. That was not a good example. Let me back up. It'd be like Eskimos debating whether it snows. Yeah. Why would a bunch of Christians debate that? I mean, only a kook would deny that. Only a crazy denier, someone denying the obvious would call this into question. And you don't talk to people like that. Okay. Well, if you're in a debate with an apologist or professor or somebody, they're going to say, well, I guess it's not true that only kooks discuss those sorts of views because there's my guy. And he's discussing these sorts of views. Huh, okay, I guess maybe this is something worth thinking about then. Right, so it gets around that whole, you don't deserve to be heard. By the way, this is why a lot of these debates don't happen. I was talking to Kermit Zarley about this once. I don't think he'd mind me saying this. He knows a bunch of theologians. He's knows people in the evangelical world, and... He's talked to them, hey, would you like to debate this? Nope, I would not like to debate you about this because that would be giving a my great, wonderful, high and mighty platform to this terrible view. When you're debating, the normal dismissals, the normal ignoring, the normal pretending it doesn't exist doesn't work because it does exist. He's standing right next to you. And moreover, he's, not standing any higher or lower than you are. And he has to play by the same rules that you have to play by. Maybe you're used to pulling rank because you're I I don't know, pastor of a mega church or well-respected professor or something like this. Maybe you're used to just people taking your word for it, but this guy isn't going to take your word for it. So I guess you're going to have to give him a good answer. And if you call him a dope, you're just going to look like a mean guy. So, The practice of debating and the rules of debating kind of level the playing field, and then they take away a lot of these factors that prevent our case from being heard. If somebody is debating for Unitarian theology or Christology, and they actually sound like their view is based on taking Scripture seriously and saying things that make sense instead of mystery-mongering, and the person actually thinks and answers intelligently back— Well, they don't seem like a mindless robot cultist, do they? So, so much for that stereotype. That just won't do in a debate kind of context. You're not published by a major press? No problem, right? Who's looking at books during the debate? They're not. They're just going to judge you by what you say. Do you make a strong case? Can you answer objections and things like that? So yeah, I think the reason that debates can be helpful, and again, they're no substitute for the evangelist. They're no substitute for the pastor. They're no substitute for person with a gift of hospitality or administration. They're they're a little weird niche thing, really. But these few things that they do, I think, are important and helpful to the body of Christ. And it is true that sometimes people will... Sit down and I think mull over them at some length afterwards. I've watched lots of debates. I like debates. And when they're done well, I really appreciate them. And, you know, pretty frequently, if they're good debaters, if they're real experts in their subject, then it makes me go back and think. And maybe I'll even replay certain parts of it and take notes and things like that. So I encourage it. It's not easy. It takes a lot of preparation you kind of put yourself at risk by doing it but it's something that shows love of truth and i think god does bless it in the end so uh, i commend it to you please uh, if you're the kind of person that can do it do it if you can encourage people who can do it encourage them if you can uh, help these kind of events to happen they don't happen unless you have people that can bring about the organization, the hosting, and so on. It takes more than just the, uh, the talker behind the podium for these things to happen. So thanks for hearing me, and uh, God bless. <laughs> when the Trinity's podcast returns, some Q&A, and also some additional thoughts about what I just mentioned. One of the important things I explained in the last segment about debates is they get around a lot of factors which exclude Unitarian Christian positions from ever being heard. We're kept out of mainstream publishing. We don't have our own higher educational institutions. We don't have very many PhDs and professors in secular institutions. It's good that debates tend to get around those factors, but of course, The longer-term strategy needs to be, more Unitarian Christians need to get graduate degrees. More of us need to become PhDs in our field. We need Unitarian Christians who are PhDs in Biblical Studies, Theology, History, and Philosophy. We need Unitarian Christians who are professors in secular institutions or in any religious institution which will have us. We need ultimately to have our own institutions to grant bachelors, masters, and PhDs. Of course, to do these things, we need to grow a lot bigger than we are now. But think about it. At least in the United States of America, there are a number of fairly smallish denominations that could manage to produce a college which might have 1,000 or 2,000 undergraduates, which might even have masters and PhD students eventually. Unitarian Christians could do this, if we choose to do this. I'm not sure it'll happen in my lifetime, but it needs to happen. In the meantime, debates. And let me also add that written debates are better than face-to-face debates. As I record this episode, I'm about, I guess, two-thirds of the way through the writing of a four-way debate book, a Four Views on the Trinity book, In which I engage with three different Trinitarians. I really think this style of written debate goes deeper. It's more detailed. It really lends itself more to study. It's hard to kind of process everything when it's going by real fast, when it's a spoken context. But when it's a written debate, you really have a chance to sink your teeth into it. This book is being edited by an evangelical philosopher friend of mine, and I'm happy to say that it will be in a kind of mainstream publisher. We PhDs do need to get into those venues as much as we can. Why? Because our view is a legitimate one. It deserves to be heard. It must be heard. In this age of information, there's really no holding it back. And it needs to be both in popular venues and in scholarly venues. Okay, so now I'm going to play for you most of the Q&A. The microphone I was holding really didn't pick up what the questioners were saying very well. So I'm going to paraphrase their questions and then go back to my live answer. The first questioner asks me about the merits of one-on-one debating versus two-on-two debating, or even a whole panel full of speakers going back and forth. He asked about advantages and disadvantages, so I start off comparing a panel discussion to a two-sided debate. Here's what I said. Yeah, it, it has both. I mean, so there's just less time for people to talk. So each side gets less chance to develop their position fully. Um, but it can be very interesting. On one of the earliest episodes of the Trinity's podcast, I was able to present some audio that came from Australia, and it was a debate slash dialogue. Those kinds of things, are, they're usually more dialogue-y than like a formal debate. But it was between a, a Muslim apologist, a Unitarian Christian, and a Trinitarian guy who was an evangelical seminary professor. And it was pretty interesting. And having three does mix it up a little bit. So when you can make it happen, and if the people are you know, kind of decent, if they know a lot about their subject, and if they're able to communicate well, it can be good. At this point, the questioner comes back and clarifies that he wasn't asking so much about a debate versus a panel discussion as he was asking about one-on-one debates versus two-on-two debates. Yeah, I call that tag teams. Uh, yeah, like two versus two. Yeah, that can be really good so long as the teams are coordinated and you know not forced to be together, as I've seen happen with bad results. No, that's, that's really good. Um, when I would coach my college students when I was a professor to debate in my philosophy classes, I always did it two on two. Because especially if you're not an experienced debater, you kind of have each other's back. Like if one person just forgets what they're talking about halfway through, the other one can just jump in. And they can sort of divide the labor up how they want to present their material. So I think two-on-two is a good way to do it. I don't know. It might even make it a little more interesting than just watching two guys. I'm not sure. The next questioner asks me, which part of the debate is the most important part? Is it the opening statement, closing statement, cross-examination, Q&A? What are my views on that? I think the opening statement's all important because that's when people are awake and paying attention. And for our position which is a minority position trying to be heard, that's our chance to be heard for the next 20 minutes. And so we just have to really use that time wisely. I've been told I do better in the Q&A part, like just answering questions. That may be so. But that's one of the hard things about debate. You, You have to make them long enough to have the sides really go into some depth. But the audience starts pooping out after the first, 45 minutes. And so, you know, things need to be interesting, but not more than about an hour and a half if you really want them to track along. Yeah, maybe two hours. The next questioner asks me if I have debated any Trinitarians, and then I have continued to be friends with them after the debate. Well, I've only been in one Trinity debate, and Michael Brown wasn't exactly ready to be my buddy afterwards. (laughs) But you know, Especially when philosophers debate, very frequently they're friends. So I debated my atheist friend, I forget, either three or four times about whether God exists, and it just made us better friends. I was not able to persuade him yet, but people enjoyed them. I think the students that saw them got a lot out of them. So it's interesting, when debates are done well and respectfully, Neither side comes away mad. When people start throwing low blows, then people are grumpy afterwards. Or if the thing isn't done fairly, you know. Say you have a moderator that, like, gives all the questions to his guy or something like that. Then bad feelings arise usually when it's done poorly. Fundamentally, if I'm debating you, I'm treating you like somebody who's important and worth listening to. It's a loving act to do it. And people appreciate that someone wants to debate them, wants to hear out their position. So they're not mad about it unless you start kicking them in the shins and saying you're ugly and your mom addresses you funny. The next questioner asks, when I have a debate, has the other person asked me or have I asked them? Uh, Let's see, the two debates that actually happened, we asked them to debate. People have asked me to debate, and, and they have been turned down because what I do is I look at their work, and I say, oh, no, I don't want to listen to that for an hour and a half. The people that want to debate are not always the people who should debate. I know people who are professors who are real experts at certain things, and they, they don't really like debating. Like, They just think it's kind of rough, and like they want more like scholarly discourse. Some of the people that know the most don't want to debate. The people who want to debate the most usually are just people who think that it's really going to raise their profile, their social profile. Yeah, you have to be careful, I think, who you pick. The last questioner asks me, rather than debating a high-profile person like Dr. Michael Brown, would it make more sense to have debates with just pastors, maybe even in their own churches? I Yeah, I mean, I would do anything like that. If the person was sincere and serious, if they wanted us to sit in chairs and have iced tea in between us and not call it a debate, that would be fine. Just if anybody would listen who's interested in the subject, I would be glad to hear him make his case if he would just let me make a case for at least 10 minutes. This is the kind of thing, though, you know, if 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 our view is is the stuff uh, of cultists, then it's not the kind of thing that needs to be understood and sort of empathetically appreciated. It's the kind of thing that needs to be ignored or dealt roughly with. And so it's usually ignored. And happily, since they ignore it, they never lose arguments about it because they don't get in arguments about it. See, that's the way to not lose arguments. I've never lost a professional prize fight. I've never been in a professional (laughs) podcast. So, but yeah, but once discussions happen, then I think it'll crack the door open more. Let's pray that more of them come our way. All right, thank you. I should add about that last question that I did have a couple of podcast episodes where I had an informal dialogue with a Trinitarian pastor, and I thought it really went very well. I liked the guy. He wasn't aggressive. He wasn't hateful. He wasn't dismissive. He put forward his arguments. I put forward my arguments. We had some good back and forth, and I really thought it was helpful, and I would like to do more of those things in the future. This kind of dialogue works when your opponent is actually a serious and humble and godly person. It doesn't work when they've bought into the apologetics theme which is a toxic part of apologetics culture, that the Trinitarian apologist's task is to humiliate and verbally kind of beat up his opponent. I mean, that's just time-wasting nonsense. It's embarrassing. It reflects poorly on Christianity and the gospel. And you don't want to get into that. But a person who actually wants to know what you think and why, and who will listen to what you think and why, and who is happy to explain their views and have some friendly back and forth? I mean, why wouldn't you do that? I'd love to do that. Serious topics have to be treated seriously. Of course I want to dialogue about these things. In the next two episodes of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to present to you a recent debate, not involving me, which I think is one of the best I've ever heard. It's a debate in which both sides do engage with respect, attentiveness, and even some good humor. And I think it's a debate that will repay some re-listening and some follow-up study. Be sure to check out the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where I've put links to all my previous debates in podcast episode and YouTube form, as well as links about the Kingdom of God ministry and missions, islam what it takes to join the trinity club and some interviews i did where i explained how mainstream christianity managed to evolve from unitarian to trinitarian this week's thinking music has been the track the blue remix file by jgsh 616. as always there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track If you love the Trinities Podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinities Podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.